of the reasons that I find World War II fascinating is so much of it was built on a huge, ginormous lie that so many people believed. And because of this belief, millions and millions and millions of people from different nations died. And many of them, around half, gave their lives for this lie. Adolf Hitler created something called the big lie. It was a tool he used to to discredit Jewish people about the reason uh, uh, that Germany lost World War I. The lie went like this. European Jews were responsible for Germany's defeat of World War I. And Hitler got a propaganda minister, and they accused the Jewish people of the German population that they were the reason for Germany's demise that they were consorting with foreign powers, that they did not conscript into the war. One of Germany's uh, propaganda ministers, Joseph Goebbels, said that all effective propaganda must be limited to a very few points and must harp on these in slogans until the last member of the public understands. One writer says that, in short, Nazi fascism hinged on creating one streamlined, overarching lie. The Nazis built an ideology on a fiction. The notion that Germany's defeat in World War I could be avenged and reversed if they could do one thing. Purge the Jewish population. One American uh, analyst uh, said this and uh, wrote this in the 70s, reflecting on uh, World War II and Hitler's strategies, his scheming, if you will. Hitler's primary rules were this. Never allow the public to cool off. Never admit a fault or wrong. Never concede that there may be some good in your enemy. Never leave room for alternatives. Never accept blame. Concentrate on one enemy at a time and blame him for everything that goes wrong. People will believe a big lie sooner than a little one. And if you repeat it frequently enough, people will sooner or later believe it. Just go over and over again with that lie. And from our limited human perspective, it seemed very successful. Millions upon millions of people dead because of a lie. Lies are powerful. Lies are effective in this world. And as we've seen in the book of Ephesians, we have an enemy who goes by Jesus called the father of lies. And he's at war against the people of the Lord. He engages in battle against Christians. And here in our text in Ephesians chapter 6, we're encouraged to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Uh, Just a recap uh, a little bit of last week before we get into our text this week. We've been told that there's a cosmic battle. There's a wrestling match of sorts against 
the rulers and authorities and evil, evil spiritual forces of the world we can't see and against us. And this poses a very real and present danger for Christians. But we aren't just supposed to sit back and take the blows. God here in this text is telling Christians to stand up, stand firm, take up your armor. Withstand the devil on the day of evil. And so we remembered last week that the devil, his role is to steal, to kill, destroy. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to destroy. He's crafty in his plans. He schemes. He, he makes big lies. And he pretty much says the same lie over and over again. God is not good. He is not for you. He's the father of lies. And he even uses God's own words to twist the truth. Friends, it's not peacetime. It's wartime. And if you are in Christ, you are part of the Lord's army. And if you are in Christ, you are fully equipped with his armor so that you can stand firm in the evil day. Two things I want you to remember as we go through these six pieces of armor for the Christian. Is one, remember that this is written to a church. Much of the epistles we kind of tend to individualize. Especially texts like this. You can maybe picture yourself getting out of bed, putting your armor on for the day. Uh, that's true, but everything here has a corporate element to it. It's written to a local church. Uh, secondly, remember that Satan can defeat a church if they don't take up their armor. That sounds kind of ominous, doesn't it? Satan can defeat a church if... They don't take up the armor they already have. I, I'm not saying anything about losing salvation here. I'm just saying there have been many faithful churches, churches that have started off faithful. And over time, they forget they're in a war and they don't take up the armor that they've been given. So we're going to see in this text that we are fully equipped to withstand Satan on the day of evil. And we're going to see that. And our six pieces of armor that were given. Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 6 on page 967 of your pew Bible. Who's there? Was that? 979. Thank you, Josiah. Look at Ephesians chapter 6, page 979 of your pew Bible. We're going to look. Today, I'm going to preach on verses 14 to 17. I'll start reading in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand on the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take up the helmet of salvation 
in the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we need to be aware that our battle is not merely, is not against flesh and blood at all. But it's against unseen principalities that we can feel, that we can sense, that through experience we know destroy us. They don't give us delight or joy that aren't encouraging us to trust in you, that aren't encouraging us to have soft, tender hearts. So God, for all of us here in this, in this room, we pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in us. Father, help us to see the powerful truth here. And Lord, especially help us to see that the victory has been won in Jesus and we have all this armor already. Encourage us to pick it up, to put it on, so that we might resist in the day of evil. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, first look at the first piece of armor there, the belt of truth. Verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. When you think of a belt, at least these days, you might think of it more, more of an accessory. Something you don't need, but maybe just the last part of your outfit. But for much of history, a belt has a very practical use. Um, When we were in the 90s, it was really cool to wear baggy jeans. And you needed a belt or else your pants would fall down. It's not a trend as much anymore. But even beyond that, belts serve the purpose of of, of really girding up your loins in a sense. As Paul says elsewhere, in this case, the purpose for a Roman soldier would have been to protect the soldier's thighs but also to kind of like put the whole outfit together. Uh, and think about that protection of the thigh. If you, if you get cut on the thigh, or if you break your femur, or the lightners, if you break your femur, you're quite worthless for physical battle. The belt is used for preparation for battle, and it's also used for protection. It's going to help you move swiftly. The imagery that Paul is using here is, is not just his own by the Holy Spirit, but it's by the Holy Spirit from Isaiah chapter 11, where we see that out of the stump of Jesse, there will come forth a branch that will bear fruit. In that context, things are looking grim for Israel. But God in his faithfulness says that out of the stump of Jesse, out of the lineage of Jesse, will come one that will bear much fruit. And then upon this one, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and righteousness and truthfulness will be on his belt. Friends, it's obvious that this is talking about the Messiah, which now we know is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the truth. And those people who are worshiping Jesus are now built upon truth, and now they are truthful people. But everywhere God's gospel goes, that truth is attacked. His people are discredited. So if you think back to, uh, we haven't been there in a while, but think back to Acts chapter 19 where Paul and the the others are in Ephesus. And there's a big riot going on. 
And there's this interesting verse in, in Acts 19, 32, in this big riot, the people don't even know why they're there. Now, some cried out one thing, says the text, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. It was utter chaos, built upon lies, trying to take down the very apostle of God. You see, the devil is behind this. The devil is a schemer. The devil is the father of lies. He doesn't like truth. And if you know what the devil means, the word devil means slanderer. The Messiah is the one who declares what is true. The devil is in opposition to the Messiah. And he twists things that are untrue, that are true, and makes them false about the Messiah. I've been having this song in my head from 1987 by Fleetwood Mac. I wonder if any of you know what it is already. Little Lies. Perhaps you know the chorus a little better. Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. No one else knows what the rest of the lyrics are. But I looked into the history of the song, and it's it's very interesting. Um, There's a relationship that the singer, the writer, Christy McVie, also the singer, is writing about. And her whole relationship, she's realized, is just built on lies. But she's grown so accustomed and akin to this relationship that she can't break it off. And so she kind of writes to her romantic partner, since this is so hard, tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. Because it's a lot easier to go on. In the end, it's easier to believe a lie than it is to face the truth sometimes. In the end, sometimes it's easier to build a relationship on a bed of lies than it is to oppose it with truth. I wonder for you, when has lying become more comfortable than truth? In what areas of your life are you not putting on the belt of truth? So many of us operate that in small ways. It, uh, it's suggested that we tell and believe anywhere from I saw the numbers. They're up as low as 20 lies a day to 200 lies a day. And so I was thinking about that. I was like, I don't think I'm a liar. My goodness. What is, am I part of this statistical group? And so I was examining my life. I hope you can do this right now. But, but think about sometimes when you're late. And let's say you're supposed to be home at 530. And you know for a fact that you're only going to, that you're going to end the earliest be home at 540 and you're talking to the person you made plans with out to eat maybe your spouse and they're expecting you at 530 and you're going to be there at 540 what are you tempted to say in that moment I'll be there in five right I'll be there just in a little bit but in reality you don't we haven't even left the office yet that's that's a lie And the scary thing about lying is that white lies grow into big lies. Rarely does someone just straight up do a huge consequential lie. It's usually built over smaller lies as they build up to big lies. 
Christians, we are the ones upheld by truth. We should be the people of truth. And our truth comes from the whole counsel of God's Word. That's why in our church we preach through the Bible expositionally or exegetically. We go verse by verse so that we're not so that when we're prone to skip over portions of truth that are more uncomfortable or maybe we don't like or maybe we want to just jump on our hobby horse, we can't do that. So we preached on Ephesians 6 the last few weeks on marriage, on, on parenting and, and children respecting their parents and kind of workplace authority structures. And when it comes to evil, Satan will break down Churches based on lies. That's his tactics. Remember, this is a corporate plea to all of you, church, put on the belt of truth, uphold truth, cherish truth, care about what is true. When we have as a church the belt of God's truth fastened around our waist, we develop this Jesus Christ like character. This Jesus Christ-like speech, this Christ-like mind. And this is the first piece of armor that's able to help us resist the devil or the slanderer, as the literal translation goes. So Warner wrote, let's continue to value what is true. To not skirt what is uncomfortable, but to know that we are people built on truth and we are people that propagate what is true. If we aren't the people of truth in this world, then who is? We are the people that proclaim that Jesus Christ was crucified and risen from the dead. Secondly, stand firm with the breastplate of righteousness. With the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness helps you stand firm against the devil's attacks. The word breastplate here is thorax in the Greek where we get our English word from. And so your thorax is, is basically from the bottom of your neck right up to uh, right above your abdomen, your, where your rib cage is. Your rib cage does a lot of things. It protects your lungs and your heart. If your heart or your lungs are punctured, you're in trouble. There's a lot of blows you can take on your body, but if your heart is impaled or your lungs are, over time you are done for. And our biggest problem between us and God, apart from Christ, is that we were unrighteous. And God is righteous. Our deeds are wicked. Our hearts are corrupt. We seek after that which is evil in thought, in word, and in deed. That's our biggest problem. And so Paul's exhortation to stand firm and to put on the breastplate of righteousness is because he knows that we still wrestle with our old man and that though we are declared righteous in Christ, we can behave in unrighteous ways. Again, none of us are above this. Otherwise, why would he be writing this to a bunch of Christians in a church? As we read last week, Paul is using here language from Isaiah 59. Isaiah, in Isaiah 59, 17, the prophet Isaiah says that the Messiah will put on righteousness as a breastplate. And so now in Christ, dear Christian, you can put on the new self, as Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
And Satan absolutely hates it when Christians are assured of their righteous standing before God. So Christian, if you struggle in your assurance of salvation, that God has really accepted you, though you still commit evil deeds, put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's Satan's tactics 101 to cause Christians to feel guilty when they are set free. You see, Jesus lived a complete life of obedience and trust for those who place their faith in him. He trusted his heavenly father perfectly. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God looks at you, Christian, and sees complete righteousness. Not a part of righteousness, not half, not mostly righteous, but look what they did that day, but as righteous. Not because of your own merits, but because of Christ. We are declared righteous, but yet we are tempted to act in unrighteous ways. So think about interpersonal contact, uh, conflict. Satan is behind that. He delights when Christians don't have open and transparent communications with each other. It's sort of like his breeding ground for the sun going down on anger. And that gives him a foothold. And then don't we start acting in unrighteous ways? We treat people with tit for tat or, or quid pro quo. We don't have grace and forgiveness and charity and love and joy and contentment. It's foolishness, really. In a sense, God is here calling the church to be heaven-like as we interact with one another. And that all starts remembering your declared righteousness and then remembering that God is calling you and enabling you to live righteously. Thirdly, we're given shoes. We're given shoes. Imagine going into a battle without any shoes. After a while, your feet would grow tired. You'd get blisters. And you'd give up. But here, the Lord has completely equipped his church and has shoes for your feet, have, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of, of peace. So in order to stand against our enemy, now we need the proper footwear. And footwear is important, right? Eventually, you need to replace your running shoes. Eventually, even the nicest shoes you buy, even if they're hundreds of dollars, will get scuffed and will wear out if you wear them enough. But here we have this, in a sense, eternal footwear, this gospel of peace that makes us ready. Now, at first, I think a first reading in this could be seen as an emphasis on evangelism. And I think it does have implications on sharing the gospel. However, that goes against the progression of the armor here. And evangelism really is included in the last piece of armor, the sword of the Spirit. Peace here, in essence, is meant to say that the message that the gospel brings is one of peace. The gospel brings peace to those who are anxious and in turmoil because of their Perceived enmity with God. 
or their real enmity with God. Again, this is a text alluding back to Isaiah chapter 52-7, which says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. On Isaiah 52, God's Messiah will come to a people who are at enmity with God and at enmity with one another. There's both vertical dissension and chaos and horizontal chaos. There's conflict everywhere and God's Messiah will come and he will announce joy and peace because God's people are now carried in his arms because of the work of the Messiah. And the question that we come to, if you look at Isaiah 52, is, 52 is, is how, did this, how was this accomplished? How did God take a people that are enemies of his and all of a sudden become his friends, his children? Well, the rest of Isaiah 52 concludes like this. After the Messiah announces joy and happiness and good news and peace, this is said about him. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. So it says in Isaiah 52 that in order for this peace to be established, in order for many nations to come and worship him and to have peace with God, there will be a disfigurement of the Messiah. So it's interesting, you have this, this, this warrior who's, who's riding on a horse, it seems like. Oh, that's later on. I guess here he's running with these shoes. And he's coming and he's announcing good news. And then something happens to him. And Isaiah 53 tells the rest of how his appearance got so marred. It says that he was despised. He was rejected by men. A man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and he was not esteemed because he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was wounded. There it is. For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that what? Brought us what? Peace. By his wounds we are healed. See, the good news of peace comes to us because of the wounds of Jesus. If he was not crucified, there would be no peace. And Christian, the devil will try to bring chaos and disorder and anxiety into your life and tell you that you have every reason to be concerned and anxious about your state before God. But friend, be ready when this typical scheme of the devil tries to derail you. Put on the shoes, put these shoes on your feet and be ready to have the gospel of peace come over you. That you might feel the closeness of your father. You see, we have this peace 
though we're called to war. It's an interesting paradox there, isn't it? Our battle, again, is not against flesh and blood. It's not fundamentally against other people. There's an unseen enemy in the background tempting all of us and causing us to despair. I love when we sing before the throne of God above because we all sing it really loudly. Especially verse 2. Because we all can relate every single week. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him, on Jesus, and pardon me. Friends, that is true no matter how we feel. We have this peace with God. And now he is our heavenly father. That takes us to the the fourth weapon or rather armor that we're given. The shield of faith. The shield of faith. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Roman soldiers carried shields that covered the whole person. I know this because I watch movies. And I made sure and and tested it and did a little research. Uh, Those formations that they do, do you guys know what I'm talking about? When Roman soldiers all come and they form a formation, it's called a a tortoise formation. Because there's this impenetrable shell that they form around each other. And they can keep advancing against the enemy when they do this. So it's not merely a defensive tactic. It's also offensive to help them keep marching on. But why a shield here? Why a shield of faith? Why not like the sword of faith or, I don't know, whatever else of faith? I'm thinking nunchucks of faith. Why not some other Roman weapon of faith? Here it's where we need to remind ourselves that all of these commands, again, are second person plural. There's this corporate exercise So think about us all collectively taking up our shield of faith and the Satan over there just aiming arrows at one or about this church. Just scheming against them. And we're not helpless. We have the shield of faith here. You can see Paul just encouraging this Ephesian church in order to stand against the flaming darts of the evil one. And notice he says, all the flaming darts of the evil one. Satan has a a few main ways and a lot of various ways that those primary ways are meant to destroy and bring down churches. Paul says to make sure you have the shield of faith. It's a shield because we need God's protection from the evil one. So many of the Psalms say that God is a shield to those who take refuge in him. He protects Those who run to him for cover. Psalm 2 says, Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Kiss the son lest he become angry with you. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's one way to say that the safest place from God is actually in God, under his protection. 
And we need this faith. This faith here is a shield that Christians can take up. And then, not just take up, but then be empowered to withstand the flaming darts of the evil one. Just imagine you're going to attack a city. And you're going to attack it. You have all your armor on except for one thing. A shield. I wouldn't feel very confident in that situation. But if I have a shield that take, I'm 6'4". If I got to have a 6'4 shield and I got a band of brothers and sisters around me. And we're all marching together against the lies of the enemies. That undergirds, that strengthens the church. And you can say, so what, Satan? You're lying again. And just stick with that, that picture for a moment. Just imagine the, us locked, arm in arm with these shields. Just, just whispering truths to one another. Don't believe that lie. It can't penetrate this armor. Let's keep marching on. Friends, that's what the church should look like. Faith here is a shield that Christians take up together and are empowered to withstand the flaming darts of the evil one. Imagery here is stark. Imagine an arrow dipped in oil, lit on fire, coming your way. That's how serious this battle is. In order for the flaming arrow of unbelief not to impale you individually or impale your church, you need to take up the shield of faith. You see, faith is the obvious weapon against the devil's scheme to cause you to mistrust God or to disbelieve him. And an ounce of mistrust in one area of your life will soon grow into other areas of mistrust toward God. And toward his people. Dear Christian, if you aren't believing by faith that God has put you in whatever situation you find yourself in this morning, allow that arrow of mistrust to be extinguished by the shield of faith. You see, when an area or an arrow of mistrust or disbelief comes and impales us, If we don't soon take it out, it's going to spread like gangrene into other areas of our lives. So ask yourself now, where are you disbelieving God? Where are you tempted to not have faith in him? What trial has entered your life this week that has caused you to doubt God's care for you? See, God's protection is powerful. And we are all under the protection of a benevolent father in Christ. And yet we're all prone to think that there's some kind of hole in this shield, aren't we? That God will care for us and love us and watch over us unless this happens. If this happens, that means God's probably not looking after me. He's probably not for my good. Friend, God's always for our good. What can separate us from the love of God? Sword or famine or nakedness? Persecution? Absolutely not. Nothing has the power to separate us from the love of God. No sort of trial, even if you don't see how God is working that trial in your life. You see, when we're tempted to doubt God... 
When we don't take up the shield of faith and we let the flaming dart come and land in us. Ungodly behavior comes out of us. Doubt. Despair. We listen to false teaching. We crumble under persecution. My friend, in all these things, the flaming dart of the evil one can be quenched by the power of God. Oh, church, have faith in this. Don't wonder about God's protection over you. Take up this shield. Fight like a good soldier. We have every confidence in God's protection because not of our faithfulness, because of Jesus' faithfulness. Because in his darkest hour, rather than disbelieving God, what did he pray? Not my will, but yours be done. He didn't become faithless like you and me. He persevered to the end, trusting his heavenly father completely and perfectly. But we don't do that. As we should. And here God is calling us to do that. The best way we can do that is to look at the faithfulness of Christ. And so that's why we sang the song we just sang. Afflicted saint to Christ draw near. I wonder if you've noticed this in, in the song. It says, your Savior's gracious promise here. His faithful word you can believe. That as your days your strength shall be. Your faith is weak. Your foes are strong. And if the conflict should be long. Which doesn't the conflict feel long when we're tempted sometimes? The Lord will make the tempter flee. That as your days your strength shall be. Friends. If you're tempted for a little while. Wait on the Lord. Take up the shield of faith. And wait and wait and wait. Don't give in. To sins like lust, like envy, like gossip. When we're pulled that way, we have to see the invisible enemy behind it all. There is someone looking to take you down individually and faithful churches all over the world down. And faithful churches take up the shield of faith and, in a sense, are able to stand above all the sin. And keep marching on. Fifthly, we have the helmet of salvation. Take up the helmet of salvation. Again, Paul is looking at the prophet Isaiah here. And he's drawing from Isaiah 59 17. We read this last week. The Lord's conquering warrior. Yahweh sending his warrior in Isaiah 59. And he conquers and he wears a helmet called salvation. <laughs> and he brings salvation to his people. And those who oppose his people and oppose his ways, he brings judgment upon. So his people will not be caught up in the judgment, though they deserved it. But because of Isaiah 52 and 53, they put their hope in the suffering servant. Now they are akin to have confidence in their salvation. And friends, we have the same helmet that this warrior had in Isaiah 59. The helmet of salvation. Jesus was our forerunner. He did it. And now he says to everyone who puts his faith, their faith in him, here, take this helmet. You will be saved from the impending judgment. We are saved by Christ. We've been raised with Christ. And now we are seated with him in the heavenly places, as Ephesians says. 
And this salvation is not up to us. Then we would have every reason to doubt. Then we would have every reason that we'd lose our head in the battle. But it is the doing of Christ and his work. So I don't know how many of you in here wonder if on that day, either the day of your death or maybe the day the Lord comes back, I wonder if you have that confidence that in judgment you will stand victorious. Friends, rejoice. Yours was a path headed toward eternal destruction. Separated from Christ forever. In the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what you justly deserved. That's what I justly deserved. And this Redeemer King came. Declaring on the mountains good news. Dying for people. Dying for the very people that crucified him. And he says, I am righteous, you are not. You can take my righteousness. He imputes it upon us. And he says, you are saved on the day of God's judgment. Nothing can touch you. Your helmet is impenetrable. If you are here and you're not yet a Christian, I wonder if you've thought about that day. What happens when you die? We don't know the hour of our death, but we know death is coming. As it said, the death rate is 100%. Everyone dies. And I wonder if you put that out of your mind so much. I wonder if you've escaped, as so many of us are prone to do when we Consider heavy and hard things. Do you put hard questions out of your mind? Turn on Amazon Prime or or Netflix every night? Maybe get lost in a good novel? Some other activity or hobby? Maybe it's your work that you so invest yourself in because you can't consider what will happen on that day of judgment. Let me encourage you. Consider the realities of Scripture. Consider that you were born... And that you will die. And that your soul, though your body will give away, your soul will go on living in some capacity. And the Bible makes it clear that if you do not, if you're not covered by the blood of Jesus, you will be condemned. And justly so. Let me encourage you that yes, God is holy. Yes, God punishes sinners, but Christ was God and man, and he took on that punishment for you so that on this day you might take up that helmet of salvation. And until God comes back, you might have confidence that you will not be judged in that day, but you'll be accepted. Because Jesus rose from the dead, there's our confidence. And he ascended on high to sit at the right hand of God, and he waits to come and get his people. If that's new news to you, please come talk to me afterward. I'd love to spend my afternoon or a portion of it and talk to you about the gospel or or meet with someone that perhaps invited you to church. But come to Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait any longer. Don't wait any longer. Lastly, our last piece of armor is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, Paul is saying it's go time. You have your belt, you have your front armor, you have your shoes for the journey, you have your shield for protection, and you have your helmets, and now you have a sword to attack. 
In our battle, we don't merely play defense. Paul is saying, it's time to go on the offense. See, offense is exciting. I'm so glad that I support a football team that has an amazing offense. And not merely the Pittsburgh Steelers of the, uh, what is it, the 90s and the the early 2000s. Which had an amazing defense. But the games are kind of boring after a while. Or like Big Ten football. We're in Big 12. Big Ten football. It's kind of boring. It's just defense. It's amazing in its own right. I see some people are offended. Some Iowa folks. Yeah. It's amazing. But what's really exciting is offense. That, that Texas Tech offense that just runs up the score. So we have Patrick Mahomes, Tyreek Hill, and um, Travis Kelsey. Yes, thank you. Travis Kelsey. That's exciting. Because offense, you can go and do something. You can make plays. You don't have to be reactive all the time. You don't have to read the offense. Or you don't have to, re- you don't have to um, try to figure out what the offense is doing. You make the plan. The defense is supposed to adjust accordingly most of the time. And here Paul is saying, now it's time to go on the attack. Take up your sword, which is the word of God. Well, why does he say the word of God and the spirit? And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The word of God without the spirit is ineffective and powerless against Satan and his schemes. If you have the word of God, but you don't have the Holy Spirit, it's like you are coming with a foam sword. Kids, do you guys have any swords at your house? Foam ones, bendable. That's not going to help you out if you're fighting Zorro or, or Sir Lancelot. So think of how many places this morning have the word of God, yet don't have the spirit of God. Well, how do you know whether your church has the spirit of God or not? That's how you come to God's word. Do you submit fully to the whole counsel of God's word? Or do you kind of pick and choose? Do you like 90% but the other 10% you don't talk about? That's how all thriving churches eventually become ineffective churches. Because they don't submit to God's word. And therefore, when they read God's word, it's not powerful. It's in a sense falling on deaf ears. So Warnell Road, we can ensure that God is working in our midst powerfully by his spirit. By if we, if we behold, if we adore, if we worship the word of God, which is Jesus Christ, as revealed in his word. Any other kind of Jesus, any made up Jesus, it, in effect, it, it dulls the blade of the sword. But Jesus Christ worshiped and trusted in as revealed in his word, becomes like a double-edged sword, pierces our own hearts, but also is able to go on the attack. This is good news for the Christian. We can attack satanic strongholds in this world. We don't have to feel so defeated when we, when we, when we realize the trafficking numbers in Kansas City or the millions and millions and over a billion of unbelievers in China or in India. But we must take up the sword of spirit and we must use it. Alexander Duff, a missionary from Scotland in the early 1800s to India, he said this about churches who cease to take up the sword of the spirit to promote evangelism. He said, the church which ceases to be evangelistic will soon cease to be evangelical. The church which ceases to be evangelistic, that is, 
promote the gospel, share the gospel, be involved in missions, talk to their neighbors, will soon cease to be evangelical. There's no such thing as an evangelical church that believes the true gospel but yet doesn't evangelize or share the gospel. And so church, let's lean into this. Let's continue to be involved in missions. We have groups this summer going to places um, in Central Asia, in South Asia, in the Middle East. If you are not part of that group, get to know some of these brothers and sisters that are going overseas this summer. In your neighborhood, open up your home to non-Christians. I mean, how much of your life is just spent around other Christians? Invite non-Christians into your home so they might see what it is to be loved and cared for and to hear the gospel of Christ. If you're feeling kind of cold and like you don't care about evangelism, pray and ask God to move in your heart. As Charles Spurgeon famously said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. As we see next week, prayer is effective. It is God's ordained means to work in this world. Christian, take up the sword of the Spirit. So many of us are bored or feeling kind of lifeless in this world. It's because you were made for action. It's like you're a soldier ready for battle, but yet you never take up battle. Or maybe you got all your armor on, your sword just lays there. If you're feeling kind of discontent or kind of bored or or some melancholy about life, consider taking up your sword by sharing the gospel with someone. We must conclude here. Christian, the devil has not defeated you. Indeed, he cannot defeat you. There's no need, as Quinn said in his prayer earlier, to be scared of the devil. At the same time, we should, not, we should realize that he is real and he works actively against us. Don't make him too big and don't make him too small. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ we have every reason to be confident in this battle. You have given us all the armor we need. Lord, help our church to be aware and not to be outwitted by Satan and his schemes. Give us wisdom. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. We go ahead and ask Philip and Andrew to come up here. On the first Sunday of each month, we take part in the Lord's Supper. The Lord gave this meal for local churches made up of Christians to celebrate together as a sign of our union with him and fellowship with each other. Um, If you're not a member of this church, 